you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Titus. Turn to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, the words to our sermon text are available inside your bulletin. So, whichever way you get there, whether it be uh, via your Bible, via your bulletin, or via maybe an app on your phone, however you get there, just get there. So, Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. We are continuing a uh, brief series through Titus. It's a small book with, I believe, only um, like 46 verses. Uh, but yet, smack uh, uh, in this small book is a large amount of dynamite that will help us as we continue to grow and as we continue to build our church in accord with God's Word. And in accord with God's word, in accord with God's purposes for his church, it is appropriate that we pray and ask God's hand upon us as we look at his word this morning. Let's pray. God, as we open your word, we pray that you would give mercy to us. We pray that you would help us to see the things that we might not naturally see. We pray you'd help us to see the arguments that Paul makes to Titus. We we pray you'd help us to follow his train of thought. And we pray that you would help us to see the manner by which your word speaks to our good as your people. And we pray all of this in the name of Christ, our Lord, who has risen and reigns over his church. And because of this, he is our hope, he is our rock, he is our refuge. Through him, your mercy is more, O God. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I enjoyed politics for much of my life. I enjoyed it uh, to the point where even growing up as a child on election nights and things like that, I would be glued to the TV watching the results, watching the returns. I remember the 2000 election and I stayed up until like 4.30 in the morning uh, watching Florida and the results and going back and forth and all of that. And uh, It's just something that whether it's the, 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 the results or the demographics or the uh, electoral trends and following those and just something about democracy in action that, that always gave me uh, a, a, a bit of uh, a, a, a sense of excitement. And so when I went away to college, I, uh, one of the things I studied was political science. And so one year while I was in college, um, I went to a, presi- a rally for a presidential candidate. I'm not going to say who this presidential candidate was uh, because I didn't support this presidential candidate. I was just there because I was fascinated by it and because I don't want to give anything that could be implied as an endorsement or anything of the sort. I don't want to derail this sermon right here before we even begin. But I was there, and I had a sign for this candidate. You know those little signs that people hold up in the background, like with the name of the candidate and all that? And so I had a sign, and I was like, well, I'm going to try to get this thing autographed. So we, uh, my friend and I that were there, were standing um, up against the rail while the candidate is walking along, signing autographs and all that. And I'm holding this sign, and you know, it's just like... um, uh, uh, it's kind of like harder substance, uh, less, less flimsy, and, and, and uh, my arm or something gets bumped, and it, the, the sign actually like almost stabs the candidate in the corner of it, and like stabs him in the eye, uh, and so that was bad. I, I, I met the Secret Service that day, and, um, uh, but, but how do you think the Secret Service responded in that moment? Yeah, they, 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 nah, they didn't quite throw me down, but, but they acted swiftly and decisively. They, they moved the crowd back, they pulled the candidate back, and, and they reestablished uh, a bit of a boundary there between uh, the crowd and the candidate. I did get my sign autographed, by the way. But 
that is, uh, that is um, the, the secret service acting in that moment was fulfilling their responsibilities. Have you ever thought about pastors or elders in the church? Kind of like the secret service. I like to think of them like that. And you might say, well, that's because you are one, Stephen. But no, here's what I mean. Secret Service has a responsibility to get this precious cargo from point A to point B through a treacherous journey, perhaps, without injury or without disaster coming upon them. The Apostle Paul gives similar instructions to pastors and elders in the church. But the precious cargo is not a candidate for office or not an office holder. The precious cargo is you. And so we're in a moment in our church where, if you're unfamiliar with this, uh, uh, in our members meeting after our service, Lord willing, we're going to vote to affirm a couple of elders that will begin to serve our church in a pastoral capacity alongside of me. And one thing that they will be doing is taking on this charge, taking on this responsibility to help to guard you, our precious cargo. In fact, what I want to argue for us this morning is that our elders must guard our church. You might ask, how? Well, here, by confronting false teaching and driving our church family towards healthy doctrine. Let me say that again. Our church elders, our pastors, must guard our church by confronting false teaching and driving our church family towards healthy doctrine. But don't take my word for it. Follow along as I read out loud the Apostle Paul's instructions to his protege Titus as he was establishing churches on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, reads as follows. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. For both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Three things we're going to see today as we consider this idea of elders guarding the church. Elders guard the church from false teachers. Elders guard the church from herself. And ultimately, elders guard the church for her good. Elders guard the church from false teachers, from herself, for her good. So first, elders guard the church from false teachers in verses 10 and 11. Uh, contextually, if you're, if you're tracking where we are, last week we looked at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And in that section, uh, Paul introduced the idea of elders serving the church as, as spiritual leadership, as spiritual shepherds over the body. And so verses 5 through 9 kind of give the uh, job uh, qualifications of an elder, the character qualifications, the... the, uh, the, the um, uh, uh, ability to teach, ability to shepherd qualifications in the church. And then if that's the qualifications that you see on the job posting for an elder, verses 10 to 16 now serve as the uh, job responsibilities of an elder. 
So you had qualifications in 5 through 9, and now you have responsibilities in verses 10 to 16. Although I will say that verses 10 to 16 are not uh, the exhaustive list of job responsibilities for elders, but they are important in the context of understanding how elders shepherd the church uh, in accord with God's word. So verses 10 to 16, first they shepherd them, uh, they guard them from false teachers. So if you, in fact, if you look back, bridging the gap from verses 5 to 9 and into our section today, Speaking of an elder in verse 9, Paul writes, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And now, coming in in verse 10, Paul writes, The reason why he must be able to do this, in that, that big four in verse 10, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So what you had in Crete... In, in, as Paul's writing this, remember Paul started some churches and then he handed them off to Titus and Titus is now responsible for helping build them up. And what you had was you had a lot of people who had um, uh, perhaps come to the faith or started to embrace Christianity and they'd come from a Jewish background. And so now they were asking natural questions and, and, and they're naturally as young believers trying to synthesize what does it mean to come from my Jewish background into Christianity? What do I bring from my Jewish background? What do I not? How do I, how do I bring, bridge these two together? And there were false teachers that were leading the church astray in, 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 in trying to bring their, their Jewish background further and, and Jewish rules and regulations further to bear upon the church to the point where the, the gospel of what the church believed, which we'll see in just a moment, was starting to get lost in the life of the church. And so Paul's writing to respond to this. And so Paul, what, what we have to understand is, okay, he's writing in response to Jewish false teachers, but our message today as we receive this, as we process this, it's not a warning to us to look out for Jewish false teachers. Paul was writing in his context. So the context whereby we start to understand it today is what are the ways where we might be tempted to be diverted from believing and practicing and teaching and singing and rejoicing in and proclaiming the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So where might we be led astray? Thankfully, as I read over this book, I don't think that we are in the boat that um, the church in Crete was where there was a lot of stuff that was dangerous and that was running rampant in regards to false teaching. But let's ask the question, if we were going to start to believe false teaching, where might we go astray? Well, I thought of it in two ways. The first way is that we might grow casual towards the gospel. And the other way is that we might start to confuse the gospel. So I've said this word a lot this morning, gospel, gospel, gospel. What is this gospel that we talk about? Well, we've sung about it some this morning in songs like His Mercy is More, and we're going to sing about it a little more in the song The Power of the Cross. But the gospel is this message that tells us all that we need to know about ourselves and about God and about how we are reconciled to God, how we are born into new relationship with God by virtue of Jesus Christ's death on the cross for our sins and by virtue of his bodily, real resurrection, we can hope in Christ. And Christ is the vehicle by which we are taken to God. So as we gather together today, you might feel like, okay, how do I measure up before God? These people seem to think they measure up before God. Well, no, actually, we think we don't measure up before God. That's the importance of the gospel. The importance of the gospel is that we are people who can say, out of no merit of our own, do we stand before God and, and think that we measure up before his entirely holy and righteous standard? But Christ is the one in whom we trust. And so Christ is the vehicle by which we come before God. So when we stand before God, we will say, I am here not because of the merits of Stephen McDonald, but because of the merits of Jesus Christ. So that is what we believe. And we invite you to believe it 
If you do not believe this gospel, we invite you to cast your life upon Christ in repentance of sin and in faith and in trust in Him and allow Him to begin to make you anew. But that is what we believe. But the danger is that we could grow casual towards that gospel. When you hear it week by week, when you sing it week by week, when, you, when weeks and months turn into years, it is possible, in fact, it is evident that, that churches regularly grow too casual towards the message of the gospel. How does this happen, you might say? Well, think of it like this. We grow casual when we go from awe to awareness. For those of you that are married, do you have this, did you have the same butterflies in your stomach with your spouse at 15 or 20 years that you had in that dating and engagement stage and in the early days of marriage? No. If you say you did, you're lying. It is possible, because of our fallen human sinful nature, that this can happen with us and our understanding and embrace of the gospel. It is possible that the miraculous can come, become the mundane. And so we pray that God would never allow us to drift into a pattern where the awe that we hold before Christ becomes simple awareness of Christ. We pray that the songs that we sing, the praise would never be divorced from passion. One way we grow casual is that we continue to praise God in song, but we actually go passionate about other matters that catch our attention. So what are things that we might be led astray by false teachers to believe that we must be passionate about? Well, I started to make a list, and then I realized the list could get too exhaustive. And so I thought of just a few. Charitable causes, good things, whether it be feeding the hungry, clothing the poor, serving the less fortunate. There are possibly good things that the church not only should do, but even church has a biblical responsibility to do. But where a, a, a secondary thing becomes a main thing, then the main thing becomes a secondary thing and it starts to get lost. Have you ever seen a church that was so caught up in all of the contemporary issues of its day that it seemed that the contemporary issues, the calendar, all of these things were driving the church in her focus and in her emphasis, and it seems as if God was just an accessory in, amongst a group of people? God must not be an accessory, but God must be the centrality of the church. The gospel does not cause us to stick our heads in the sand and have lack of awareness of what is going on in the world around us, but the gospel actually informs how we speak to and how we engage with the world around us. It's possible that we can grow casual towards the gospel when we simply seek to care for one another, but in a worldly and a friendly sense and not in a care for one another in a spiritual sense and trying to build one another up in the faith. A church can become a, lot of, a group of people who really care for one another and who think warmly about one another, and that is a good thing. But it is a bad thing if a church thinks warmly about one another and cares for one another while not trying to seek to encourage one another in growth as a follower of Christ. Not only saying, hey, how's it going, and talking about the weather and the ball game, but saying, hey, how is your soul? How are you doing in trusting the Lord? How are you doing as you're navigating through this hard season that you were walking through with your health or with a loved one? Not a, hey, we're going to make it, but a, hey, are you, are, are, how can I help you to ha grab hold of the trust and grab hold of the promises of God and us grab hold of those together? We grow casual when other things start to crowd out our awe and our passion. I want to give you a, a homework assignment. Give myself a homework assignment. Every Sunday when you come to church, I want you to do one thing as you're walking from your car to the church building. I want you to look up at the steeple. 
In fact, look at it now. Isn't it pretty? Nice paint job we got a few months ago. It looks good, right? Some of you may have heard me mention this before, but do you know why so many old historic church buildings have such beautiful, tall steeples that seem to point towards the heavens? It's not because a lot of older folks back in the day did, had a lot of extra time on their hand and they decided, decided to build really high steeples. They believed, I think rightly, that the church is a people who are, who are uh, though their feet are on ground here on earth, their hearts are inclined towards heaven. What you will see when you walk into the doors of the church ought to be a preview, a taste of the kingdom of God. And so when you walk into the church, look up towards that steeple and may your heart be reminded that I, I am here not because of something natural, not because of something normal, but because of something supernatural. And may I be given to beholding and awe, standing in awe before the God who is revealed in His Word and His Gospel that is the means by which I live in Him. Though our feet be on earth, may our hearts be pointing towards heaven as our steeple reminds us, us day by day. So, false teachers can cause us to grow casual towards the gospel even if they're passionate about good things that they try to lead us towards. Secondly, we can grow confused in the gospel. This happens with the gospel and convictions that we develop even based on the Bible. There are convictions that I have that are biblical that I think are shaped and articulated by the Bible, that, going back to the example of politics, that even shape how I vote. There are certain convictions that a political candidate can hold, that if they hold those convictions, I would find it very, 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 very unlikely that I would be able to vote for them for office. And I'm going to share with you all of those convictions now. Just kidding. I'm not. And you know why I'm not? Because in doing so, it is possible that I might confuse the gospel. When we make issues that are not the gospel to be important and primary issues, then we start to lose the gospel. We confuse it and we think, okay, a church must believe this or a church must act in this manner or she will lose her power. But this is not true. Think of it like this and, when, and this idea of confusing the gospel. If this gospel is this message of God making us new, making us new giving us new life through Jesus Christ, then how do you check if somebody is alive? They have a beating heart. Are they breathing? Those are two good checks, right? Those are two basic foundational level. If the heart's beating, if they're breathing, hey, I think this one's alive. Now, there are habits that we want to instill in people so that if they are alive, they might live in a healthy manner. You want them to eat healthy. You want them to exercise. You want them to get good sleep. Uh, you want them to, you know, do those things that will give them a healthy life. But somebody who is only eating Big Macs and only eating Happy Meals and only eating uh, uh, chalupas and, and chimichangas and all of that stuff and laying on the couch all day and, and sleeping uh, uh, crazy amounts of hours and all this thing and generally being slothful and unhealthy, as long as that heart is beating and as long as their mouth is breathing, they are still alive. What happens with churches that confuse the gospel is they start to place more conditions on people, even conditions that ought to be healthy in a Christian. That, but, but they start to place those on them, and they start to say, oh, this one doesn't look like us, or this one doesn't act like us in this exact manner. Therefore, I'm not cer certain that they're alive. Just because they're not running the marathon with you doesn't mean they aren't alive. So as a church, we want to help one another grow in health, but we don't want to confuse whether or not somebody is spiritually alive. But when we start to tell people how they have to act in certain situations, how they have to behave in certain 
responses to certain ethical dilemmas and, and how they have to uh, contextualize how they, how they act, how they function, how they vote, how they, how they operate in this world to the point where, okay, I think Christians can only act this way when that is not in accord with the Bible. Then we start to confuse the gospel. And so ultimately, whether we grow casual towards the gospel or whether we confuse the gospel, this can have devastating consequences upon the church. There was a man named Marius Ells. He was a South African who one day he found a baby hippopotamus on his property. And so he started to feed and nurture and raise up this baby hippopotamus. And as the baby hippopotamus started to grow, a lot of friends and others around him started to warn him, hey, this hippopotamus is starting to grow and it might be a little unsafe for you and others around us. Did any of you know that hippopotamus are some of the most dangerous animals on the planet? Anybody know that? They got really sharp teeth. They look goofy. And I think that's part of their, why they're dangerous. They just look silly. But apparently they have really sharp teeth, they're really aggressive, they can swim really far and really fast, and they can do all these things. And sadly, Mr. Ells in South Africa learned that lesson the hard way when this baby hippopotamus that he had nurtured from birth grew up into a full-grown hippopotamus and ate him. Yeah, you didn't expect the story to go there, did you? Here's the reality, everybody. And here's why Paul is so serious about this with the church in Crete and why we must be so serious about it in not losing the gospel. The things that become cute little pet projects for us, even good things, can grow up and consume us if we are not careful and don't remain steadfast in the gospel and the gospel alone. So, Paul warns against false teachers. He tells the church that elders must guard the church from false teachers. But next, elders must guard the church from itself. Now, this one's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. Read this as I follow it. So, so Paul says, verse 10, okay, so... Uh, uh, he says, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision of party. Next, he says, they must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So Paul says, they must be silenced. Now, verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Pause here. If somebody started to describe what, situites, Situations? What are we? Um, uh, South Shore, I, I mean, I know not everyone's from Situate. Okay, but, but, but if somebody started to describe the, and, and let's, say, let's just say this. I am not saying this, okay? But let's just say somebody else started to say this. Situate people are liars. They're evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. You would expect somebody else, hey, that's harsh. Yeah, they got their rough edges, but they're good people. Wouldn't you expect somebody to respond that way? But look how Paul responds about this condemnation about the Cretans. I just want to read it again. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars. They're evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Paul says it's true. He's warning his audience, which is made up of Cretans, residents of the island of Crete, new Christians who make up this young church. He's warning them against themselves. This prophet that is referenced here is probably a guy named Epimenides, who was a 6th century B.C. philosopher and former Cretan. And he warns of the nature of the people of Crete. And this is what Paul is warning at. You don't just need to hear the warnings that are outside of you, but you need to understand your own heart so that you can be warned about the dangers that you can invite upon yourself in believing falsely and in acting falsely as the church. What are the things that somebody might say about the people of Situate or people of South Shore? 
think we're proud. I think we're like comfort. I think we like safety. I think we like security. Not necessarily bad things. But let's consider how these good things or even blessings from God can become bad things. Well, pride is not a blessing from God, but let's consider this. We live in an affluent, highly educated, most of the time beautiful part of the world. I'm a native of the South. Outdoor worship services like this are impossible from about the middle of March until Christmas. We have two seasons down there, hot and not as hot. And yet we are able to sit under the beautiful sunshine like today. Occasionally we have weather that's not so beautiful. We are able to sit here and enjoy this. And after this service, if you want to, you can drive and within five minutes be at a beach. If that's not your cup of tea, you have a number of restaurants and, and, and bars and pubs and all sorts of things that you can go find entertainment, you can go find laughter, you can go relax. If that's not your cup of tea, between the channels that you have on your TV, between all the streaming apps and everything else, you have literally thousands of entertainment options awaiting you on a device or on a phone or on a computer or on a large TV, on anything that you want so that you can make sure that you are comfortable and that you are entertained and that you are taken care of. And I am in part of that you. I have all of these capabilities myself. The danger in an affluent, highly educated, health-conscious kind of place is that we can be lulled to sleep in believing things that are untrue about ourselves and untrue about our spiritual state. How often do we give such great attention to our physical health while neglecting our spiritual health? The Apostle Paul warns about this elsewhere to the church of Corinth. How possible is it that we can boast of so many great things that we can pat ourselves on the back of? Our sports teams win titles all the time. Our bank accounts, they grow. Our investments, they're doing well. Our families, our children, they're, they're having great accomplishments. We have so many things that we can be proud of. And yet, is it possible that we can pat ourselves on the back so much that we actually push our Bible away as it addresses our hearts? The warning, I think, that we must hear in this is that we can be given to pride that dismisses God's Word. Or when God's Word confronts us, maybe as it is today, we say, hold on a second here. Do you realize that sitting in judgment over God's Word, as opposed to it sitting in judgment over us, is this first step of this danger of us losing the Gospel? Our heartbeat towards God's Word and towards its authority over us, and even towards our elders and our pastors who will seek to shepherd us in accord with His Word, our heartbeat ought to be joyful receptivity. Not confrontation and objection. Make no mistake, if pastors or elders start to lead in a manner that is unbiblical, and that is ungodly, that, ought, that must be called to account, that must be brought to attention. This is not blind spiritual obedience. But this is joyful submission and recognizing that God's goal for your life and for mine, hear this, God's goal for your life and for mine is not our comfort and peace in this life. 
but our contentment and understanding of the power of God at work in us, in this life, as He takes us to the next life. Perhaps the great mercy of God to you is not in giving you great comfort and peace, but in giving your heart conviction over sin. Perhaps the great mercy of God to you is not in giving you the wildest dreams that you wish that He would provide for you. In fact, if you were to try to determine what it is that God is doing in your life, and if you were to make out a list and you'd say, okay, God seems to be meeting the objectives here, here, and here, but He is not meeting the objectives here, here, and here. What is He up to? What Paul would say that He is up to is that He is guarding you against going astray. In fact, look at what Paul says. Speaking of the Cretans and giving this quite firm condemnation of there, of them, he says this testament, in verse 13, he says this testimony is true, and then he says, therefore rebuke them sharply. Why? That they may be sound in the faith. The sharp words of God's word and even the sharp rebuke of God's servant to you is not to take you down a few pegs, but to push you closer to Christ. May we all receive a firm word, even if that firm word brings difficult introspection and reflection. So elders, they guard the church from false teachers. They guard the church from herself. And lastly, elders guard the church for her good. So Paul's goal here is that the church may be sound in the faith. And then listen to verses 14 and 15. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. And here's why this is a word of truth and even a word of firmness that might be difficult, but it is life-giving. Let me ask you this question. Amidst all the voices that you hear throughout the week, whether it be performance reviews at work, whether it be people who work alongside of you who, who seem to, you don't seem to be measuring up to their expectations, whether it be in your home and you feel like you, you don't measure up as a parent, or whether it be in your, your, your relationships with other people, you have a hard time finding and, and keeping a, a, a relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Whether it be those around you are in declining health, or whether it be those around you have passed away, and you feel like life has a way of always rattling your cage a little bit, and specifically life has a way of rattling your cage to the point where you feel as if relationships are unsafe for you, or you feel as if you don't quite meet the expectations that other play, others place upon you. That is the danger that Paul is writing about here as he writes to the church in Crete. Listen to this. He says in verse 14, I don't want you to devote yourself to these false teachings, these commands of people who turn away from the truth, because to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. He says, I want you to know and have peace in your heart. These false teachers are coming in here and telling you all the things that you have to do to be correct in the eyes of the world around you. And what I'm telling you is that in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone, you live. In Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone, you have hope. In Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone, you are made right before God. And it is possible that you do not measure up before the eyes of anyone around you, anyone that, 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 uh, that speaks into your life or that has a voice into, uh, in, into your soul. You don't measure up before any of them. And Jesus Christ says that if you are mine, then that is all that matters because you measure up before the God of the universe. 
And the message of the gospel is that the world around us, with all of its expectations upon us, that puts weights upon our shoulders, the world around us does all of this to the point where it will drive us into the ground. And Jesus Christ comes and He lifts those weights upon our shoulders and He makes them His own. He bore the shame that you deserved, that I deserved on His cross. And He invites us into a new identity where we live by virtue of His grace. Grace of Christ is our heartbeat and grace of Christ is our song. And Paul is writing that the church in Crete must be firmly rebuked Not because He has it out for them, but because He loves them. And He does not want them to be led astray from the Christ who loves them. He does not want them to be led into believing that they do not measure up in the eyes of God. He does not want them to believe that there are other ways in which they can know God, or or, or to believe that there are ways in which the world around them can crush them in a a burden of expectations and and a burden of of unmet um, responsibilities. But he says, whatever your background, whatever your experience, whatever your hardship, whatever sin you may bring to the table, I want you to know that Christ has atoned for it, and in that you may have peace. So he says these false teachers, they are unbelieving, they are defiled, nothing is pure with them. But verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So brothers and sisters, hear this firm warning of Paul. This difficult warning of Paul. But in the difficult warning of Paul, there's a sweet invitation towards our Savior. Will you trust in Christ in the manner in which sound doctrine invites? Will you trust in Christ in the manner in which You are willing to align your life, align your soul, align your heart. You're you're willing to say that no matter what the world around me, no matter what the relationships that surround me, what they may frown upon me about. In Christ I have all that I need and in Christ I am made whole. Hear the warnings of Paul and pray for those of us who would shepherd you to that point. The responsibility of your pastors and of your elders is to help you to get there. I pray that this service would be one more step in that journey. This sermon would be one more step. And pray for your pastors and your elders that we may serve like that secret service, safely getting you from point A to point B. That is our charge from Paul. Pray for us. And may we be a presence and a voice of peace and of hope in Christ, who has accomplished all that he must accomplish for our good, for our salvation in him. Let's pray. God, we conclude this, knowing that elders guard the church by confronting false teaching and driving the church towards healthy doctrine. And so, Lord, may you help us, may you help us to submit to this. May you help us to trust those whom you have put in spiritual authority over us. And may you help us ultimately to trust Christ who reigns over us and who rules over his church by his word that we may know that the voice of Christ is a voice of warning to those who do not know Him, but to those who do know Him, no matter what the other voices in their life may say, He is a voice of welcome. He is a voice of relief and a refuge. 
So Lord, help us to guard your people for the sake of their good, for the sake of their spiritual growth, for the sake of the glory of Christ amongst his people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.